church broke out in this place this morning, I'm telling you. All right, Williamsburg, Somerset, I'm guaranteeing the same thing happened over there. This is when in the church I grew up in, Brother Ray would stand up and say, bless the Lord, I tell you, it's already been a good place to be. We could leave right now. We're not going to, uh, but it's been really, really, really good. Hey, let's put our hands together at all of our churches and thank all of our leaders for leading us in such a wonderful, man, that was awesome. Hey, uh, before we jump into what we're going to talk about today, uh, I want to tell you about a couple really important things. Uh, two weeks from today, on February the 9th, uh, I am super excited about a brand new series that we're going to be starting uh, called The Jesus That I Never Knew. And so this is going to be an awesome series to be able to invite someone who hasn't been in the church in a long time or never been in church because uh, so many people walk around with an incomplete, incorrect idea about who Jesus is and, and what he came to do. And too many people inside the church have a very boring and tame and inside a little bitty box uh, version of Jesus that they subscribe to. Uh, but I am hopeful and prayerful that in this series, we are going to, as we open up the Gospels and just camp out with Jesus uh, for quite a while, as we discover who he is and what he came to do and how he interacted with people and why he did it that way, uh, that we may just discover a version of Jesus that is greater and better than we ever imagined. So that's going to get started on February the 9th, so make sure you find somebody to come sit with you on that day. And then tonight at 6 o'clock at all of our churches, we're having night of worship, so I would love love for you to be here. Uh, it's always a special time when we get together as a church, and so I want to invite you back uh, at all of our churches tonight at six o'clock, okay? Now, uh, today, uh, I want to talk to us about something that we've been talking about for the past three weeks, uh, and I want to introduce it by talking about the Jesus that we do find in the Gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, there are so many things about Jesus that just leaps off the page, and, and one of the most compelling things to me uh, that leaps off the page when it comes to Jesus is how clear he was about his purpose. Jesus, with crystal clear clarity, Jesus understood what his purpose was. And so all through the Gospels, we find a purpose-driven Jesus. We find a Jesus that operates in his purpose, walks in lockstep with his purpose because he understood with crystal clear clarity his purpose. And I think that's one of the things that made Jesus so compelling, one of the things that made Jesus so magnetic. And for some, uh, one of the things about Jesus that made him so irritating because Jesus showed up and he spoke to a group of people who by and large, their concern and their mentality was existing and surviving. And then Jesus shows them something better than existing. He shows them living. He shows them what living looks like, not what existing looks like, but what living looks like because you move from existence to living when you begin to embrace and walk in and from your purpose. And so Jesus understood his purpose, Jesus embraced his purpose, and his purpose became the North Star for his life. And Jesus referred to his purpose in many different ways. Here's some of Jesus' own words about his purpose. Uh, one time he said, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. That's my purpose. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your savior, Jesus said the reason that he showed up in history was for you. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I'm coming after you, Jesus would say. Not because I'm angry with you, but because I love you. In another place, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Jesus said, I have come to die for you. 
I've come to die in your place. I've come to take your sin so that you can be forgiven of your sin. So Jesus, he understood his purpose. And then a verse that we've looked at over and over again throughout the series, on one occasion, Jesus said, I have come that they, that you, that we may have life and have it to the full. Now, when you look at Jesus's life and you take it in the context of his purpose, purpose that Jesus walked in, Jesus's purpose that he perfectly understood, it diffused into every part of his life. His choices, one day Jesus is taking a trip and he just you know, changes course. He says, I gotta go through Samaria. And it was out of the way and most people who were Jewish didn't you know, travel through Samaria, but, but he was informed by his purpose. And so his purpose diffused into the choices that he made, the conversations that he had, the prayers that he prayed, the friends that he chose, his social calendar, how he saw people, how he responded to people. All of it was informed and influenced by his purpose. He saw his purpose with clarity. It diffused into every part of his life. Now, I say that to say this. As crystal clear as what Jesus was about his purpose, Jesus wants you and I to be crystal clear about our purpose. That's the reason Jesus announced to his followers in the first century and to all the followers in subsequent centuries that if you're gonna follow me, Jesus would say, the purpose for your life is to live your life in such a way, to leverage all of your life, to see people who are far from Jesus follow Jesus. People who are far from God, that they would follow Jesus. He said, that's your purpose. And I don't want you to lose sight of it. I don't want you to ignore it. I don't want you to neglect it. I don't want you to downplay it. I want you to understand it with crystal clear clarity that if you are a Jesus follower, your purpose is to live your life to see people far from God follow Jesus because here's what Jesus knows. When we embrace our purpose, purpose diffuses into every part of our life and consequently and simultaneously, it infuses meaning into every part of our life. When we get lockstep in our purpose, everything in our life begins to have significance and it begins to have meaning because everything in our life is a means to an end. And then everything in our life begins to find alignment behind our purpose. Once we embrace purpose, live in purpose, it diffuses into all parts of our life and the byproduct of that is every part of our life begins to get in alignment behind and with that purpose. And the reason we find meaning is that because every part of your life and my life becomes a means to an end that is bigger and greater than my life and bigger than greater than my lifetime. So when you follow Jesus, and when I follow Jesus, this is elementary, but I think we need to be reminded of it. Not only did you follow Jesus because you believed that he was savior, we also follow Jesus because we believe he is Lord. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. So when I follow Jesus, I just don't take forgiveness. I just don't take peace. I don't just take eternal life and a better life. I also receive his Lordship. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And he says, if you're gonna follow me, you have to surrender to me. And specifically, you have to surrender to my purpose for you. Because if I'm Lord, it's not your purpose that trumps all. It's my purpose that trumps all. And so in the Christian life and in the church, uh, we have historically called this the great commission, the great mission that Jesus gave us, our purpose 
to go see people far from God follow Jesus. And so what that means is when we embrace that purpose, it diffuses into every part of our life and every part of our life gets meaning. And so here's what it looks like. When we embrace the Great Commission, our purpose, all of our relationships become a means to this end. You have influence through your business, through your personal friendships, because you go to school, you're on the same team with, you know, you're on campus with. Every relationship becomes a means to an end when you embrace your purpose. You try to find ways to leverage your influence to invite people to take a step in the direction of Jesus. When you begin to get in alignment with this purpose, our careers become a means to this end. Your career is not the end, it is a means to an end. So we try to discover as followers of Jesus, how is what I do for a living a means to see people far from God follow Jesus? And, and we, we think about that, we pray about that, we wrestle through that. Our careers become a means to an end. Our stories become a means to an end. Our failures, our successes, our past, our present, you know, the mud and the muck and the mire, it, it, it becomes a means to an end. Our stories, our scars, it becomes a means to help people Take a step in the direction of Jesus. Our talents become a means to an end. What you're good at, what you're passionate about, your gifts, all of that is a means to an end. Not your end, God's end. Your purpose is a means to an end. Your existence is a means to an end. And not only all of that, but, but a little bit more uncomfortable than what we've been talking about in recent weeks, what we're gonna talk about today is that when we get in alignment with this purpose that Jesus has spoken over our lives, our money becomes a means to an end. And I know some of you are thinking, great. This is gonna be about money. You're pretty sharp, aren't you? You're above average. What do you think about when you think about money? What do you see when you see money. When money gets deposited in your automatic draft, you know, from your work on Friday or at the first of the month or when somebody unexpectedly gives you a gift or you look at your balance, when you get paid and you take it and you cash it and you've got that cash in your pocket, what do you think about when you think about money? What do you feel when you think about money? Now here's the thing we all need to understand. Money is not the end. Money is not the end, though some people treat money as though it's the end. That the end game is to get more money. That's the reason I got a job. That's the reason I'm investing. That's the reason, you know, that I'm an entrepreneur. That's the reason that I'm, you know, putting some back over here and putting some back over here and hiding some in jars, burying it out in the backyard. That, it's because we treat, some of us, we treat money like an end, but money is not the end. Money is not a God. Though some people treat it as though it's a God. Money isn't bad. Some of us grew up in churches that, you know, they would get up and they would talk about people with money. And it was like everybody who had money, they were just bad because they had money. Money is not bad. Money is neutral. It's like a baseball bat. It's like a gun. It's what you do with it that determines. Money's just, money just is. It isn't bad. Money isn't evil. Let me tell you something else. Money isn't happiness. That's right. Amen. 
This is not happiness that I hold in my hand. Some folks, they want to think that the more of this that they hold in their hand and put in their pocket, the happier they're going to be. But every, every single one of us, we know people who have lots of this and very little happiness. Money isn't happiness. Money isn't peace. Someone's dying. Someone's facing death. You can't walk up to their bedside and just hand them a wad of cash and all of a sudden peace washes over them. Money isn't peace. Money isn't joy. You can walk up to somebody and you can give them some money and they may smile and it may make them feel good for a bit. But you know what? Real life sets in eventually again. And money isn't joy because lots of people have this but lack joy. Money isn't hope. You can't give this to somebody and all of a sudden they have hope. Money isn't comfort. Money isn't purpose. Money isn't life. We try to make it a cheap substitute for all of those things. But for Jesus followers, oh, for Jesus followers, money is a means to an end. God's end, not ours. For Jesus followers, if you claim to follow Jesus, he's your savior, he's your Lord. Money is not the end for you. You understand that it's a means to an end, but not your end. Not your wife's shoe collection end. Not your bass boat collection end. Your hunting dog end, right? Not, not your end, God's end. Now, if I'm gonna say I'm in, if I'm gonna put my yes on the table, I gotta realize that I've been invited into the church. I'm a part of the church and every part has a part to play and the church is at its best when every part does its part. And so I'm a part, I wanna do my part. When I say I'm in, I understand that. When I say I'm in, I understand that I have influence and so I wanna leverage my influence and invite people to come sit with me and invite people to follow Jesus. When I say I'm in, like we talked about last week, I gotta be involved in the local church. I believe the greatest thing that I can do is serve others and I believe the greatest place to do that is in and through the local church. So I put my yes on the table. I don't wanna be on the sideline in the church or the grandstand in the church. I wanna be involved in the church. But if we're gonna say I'm in, if we're gonna say I'm in to all of those, it also means my yes is on the table as it relates to being invested in God's purpose. It means that I'm saying yes to funding God's purpose in this world. Amen. If I'm going to say yes to this purpose thing, yes, I'm going to be involved. Yes, I'm going to serve. Yes, I'm going to use my influence. But it also means yes to funding God's purpose. Now, I know some of you, you don't like it when preachers talk about money. You think the church should never talk about money. And I would say one thing to you, you should read the Bible because there's lots of things in the Bible about money, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And just so that you know, just so you know that I'm in good standing because I hardly ever do full sermons about this. And if you've been around here for very long, you know that to be true. But, but if Jesus took over for me and I took a year sabbatical and he filled in for me for the next 52 Sundays, that means that 17 of those 52 Sundays would be all about money. And you would have to get ticked at Jesus instead of me. And I just think it'd be hard to be ticked at Jesus. You know? So, but Jesus is not here in the sense that he's preaching. But he's here. Over half of his parables, to some degree, had to do with money. And Jesus said lots of significant things about money. Because he wanted us to think correctly about money. It's a means to an end, not 
our end, but God's end. So one of the most significant, maybe the most significant thing that Jesus said about money is he said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Let's all, at all of our churches, Williamsburg, Somerset, London, let's all just say this out loud on three. One, two, three. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I want to draw your attention to something. The accreditation for this statement does not say TKB. It does not say TB. It does not say Trev. It does not say Pastor Barton. But it says Jesus. The one who died for your sins was buried and raised from the dead. The one that you say is Savior and Lord and knows all things. And here's what he did. This is amazing. Jesus connected our hearts to our money. That's almost offensive. Except Jesus said it. And it's hard to be offended at Jesus. Now, here's something that sounds very Christian and very churchy and and very sound. God cares about your heart. We've heard that all of our lives and we would say yes and amen. God cares about my heart. God cares what's in my heart because out of our heart come all the issues of life. And Jesus said every sin, it originates in the heart, works its way out. So yeah, God cares about your heart. But here's the thing. Here's the flip side of that. The uncomfortable part of that. Because God cares about your heart, God cares about your money. Because he says your money is in some way connected to your heart. And and Jesus, not, not me, I'm not this smart, but Jesus, he said that more than likely the chief competitor against God in your life is probably gonna be money or something related to money. That the chief competitor, that the chief idol The cheap God substitute in all of our life at some point will be tempted to make it money rather than God. Now, what Jesus is saying through all of this is that not only is our money attached to our heart, but he says, if you want to know about your heart, follow your money. Because what we do with our money is what is ultimately most important to us. Follow the money and it'll lead you to your heart. Follow the money, Trevor, it will lead you to your heart. So here for super duper Christians, for super spiritual Christians, prayerful Christians, Bible study Christians, get up early devotion Christians, listen to Caleb 24 seven Christian. Jesus would say, it doesn't matter what you pray and it doesn't matter how much you read, it doesn't matter how much you study. Doesn't matter how much you lift up your hands. You can praise until you sweat on Sunday. But I'm gonna tell you, follow the money. Oh, oh, I'm leaving the church. I'm going with you because I'm offended as well. He says, you can do all of that. You can talk your super duper spiritual talk. You can talk about righteousness and holiness and integrity. And you can talk about yes and yes and no and no. And you can talk about all that, but follow the money. God wants us to have a heart for him. And when we have a heart for him, you know what we have a heart for? His purpose in this world. Jesus who died for you, who rose from the dead for you, said this. And here's what he believes. This is what he's teaching us. Unless Jesus has access to your money, he doesn't have access to your heart. I told you, this is terrible. I'm not even coming back tonight of worship tonight. I'm going to have the board take out a higher life insurance. I'm not even walking outside while there's cars on the parking lot today. I mean, this is, this is a little in our business. 
This, this is personal. I mean, this is, this is our money. Jesus said, your money is a window to your heart. And you got to take that up with Jesus. You just do. Another thing that Jesus said is, he said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Let's all just say this out loud, all of our churches. It's more blessed to give than receive. Seven words that apparently Jesus said over and over and over and over again. You don't find this phrase in the Gospels, but you find this phrase in a letter written by Paul. And he references it in such a way that most Bible scholars and New Testament scholars believe that this was something Jesus just said all the time. And so, you know, Jesus would be preaching and in every sermon, he would just say this, you know, some of you have picked up, there's certain things I say over and over and over again. And it just kind of comes out in sermon. You're like, oh my God, is he going to say that again? I can write that down. Matter of fact, he said this to two years ago and, and I've got the notes on it. And, and, and so this was one of Jesus's things. He, every time he'd be preaching, he, you know, I could just let the little children come to me. And by the way, it's better to give than receive. Hey, let me talk to you about the birds of the air. And by the way, it's better. He would always just be saying this. And whenever somebody heard this saying, they associated it with Jesus. And the reason that Jesus kept on saying this throughout his ministry was because this is not how we naturally think. This is not our default. We, we think it's better to receive than give. And, and receiving is fun. Let's just, let's just put it out there. Can I get an amen? amen. Receiving's fun. That's not what he's... He's not saying that it shouldn't be fun to receive, but he says, it's better to give than receive. And so here's what he's pushing back against. He's saying your best life, your life of purpose, your full life that, that, that springs up and you know, rolls over into the life of other people, it's in giving, not receiving. Have you ever noticed there's no really, I mean, there's probably exceptions, but there's really, have you ever heard a really exciting spending story? Let me tell you, I, I, I was so blessed this week. You know, they, they tell you a spending story. But how many of you have been encouraged, inspired by a giving story? You've heard about somebody who gave and somebody who sacrificed. And this is what Jesus is saying, that this is the better way to live. He's inviting us and enticing us into generosity. Because here's what Jesus knows. When we live with purpose, it is only a matter of time until we give with purpose purpose. Now, let me tell you, this works both ways. If you live out your purpose in life, and if I live out my purpose in life, eventually I will give to my purpose. But if I live out God's purpose for my life, eventually I will give to that purpose. And that's what Jesus understood. You live with purpose. It's only a matter of time until you give with purpose and you give to that purpose. Now, as Jesus followers, we're part of the local church. And every single one of us, we're standing up on the shoulders of generational generosity. We are standing on the shoulders of people who bought into this, who lived this. They embraced God's purpose for their life. They lived with purpose. They gave with purpose. And they gave to the purpose of God. And guess what? Here we are. Amen. The local church in the 21st century. We did not get here by ourselves. Somebody else funded our way to the present. And that's the way it's been in the church for the past 2,000 years. Jesus' followers funded through generosity the future of the church. And in doing so, God's purpose was furthered in the world. This is what you find in the book of Acts. 
They brought their generosity and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And the local church furthered the mission of God. God's generosity towards them inspired their generosity back to God. Now, again, think about this. We don't think about this. We, we want to spiritualize. And let me tell you, if you think money isn't spiritual, you've not heard a thing I've said. Jesus said this is an incredibly spiritual thing because it's connected to your heart. And if it's not spiritual, it's physical. At least it has spiritual implications at the very least. We are all Christian today because people throughout the generations have funded God's purpose. We didn't get here by free. It wasn't a free lunch for us to get to this moment in time. There were Christians all throughout history who funded God's purpose. And so there's so much in the New Testament. Jesus talked about it. And then the Apostle Paul, who started a lot of churches, he, he wrote a lot about this, about living with purpose and giving with purpose and giving to purpose because everybody's living with a purpose. It's either yours or God's or somebody else's. And everybody's giving with purpose. You're, you're giving to something. You're funding something. And if it's not God's purpose, it's either your purpose or somebody else's purpose. So Paul writes about this and he writes about it to Timothy. And we looked at 2 Timothy last week and this is in 1 Timothy. But here's the advice he gave to Christians in the first century about how to get this right. About funding the mission of God. He gives us some great advice. He says, but godliness, that certainly sounds spiritual. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if this is true... The opposite is true. Ungodliness and discontentment is what? A great loss. If godliness and contentment is a great gain for you, then ungodliness and discontentment is a great loss for you and for me. Godliness, here, here's the best way I know how to describe it. Godliness is living and speaking and existing and doing life as though God is always present. That's what it is. Now, the thing about it is, the kicker is, God is always present, but we kind of lose sight of that. We all do better when people are watching. You ever go to the grocery store and you know, you're out there and you got that load full of groceries and you're pushing the cart and then you get it out and man, you're tired, it's the end of the day, it's the end of the week and kids have been crazy and, and you're a long way away from like the, the cart center, you know, where you park your carts. And there you are and you're, you're tempted to just leave it. You know, just roll it up to the front where it's you know, not gonna hit anybody. And you know, they got people for that. And if I don't leave it here, I'm gonna rob somebody of a job. Right? You know, and all these things that we think, I, I've just been told people think like this. I, I don't know this to be true. But then I'm always like self-conscious and, and I did it the other day, I was there and, I, and now I'm just paranoid. I'm paranoid everywhere I go. If you look at me twice, I assume you're a creaker. Uh, I may not know your name. I may not know your story, but if you smile at me, I assume we're going to church together. Hey brother, hey sister, hey, so good. I'll see you Sunday. Like, where, where are we gonna be? So, you know, and, and I just assume at least one out of every three cars pulling into Kroger, they go to church. And, and when I want to leave it, I'm thinking, gosh, somebody's watching. And if not, there's those cameras. And that manager guy, Kroger, I know he goes to our church. And, and so, you know, maybe you're here today. And, and so uh, maybe he looks at the film. 
And, and I'm like, I can't leave this cart. And so as much as I hate it and don't want to, I walk that flipping cart down there and I try to shove it as far as I can without, I like 30 yard roll. It's like bumper cars. All because somebody's watching. You go to the gym, somebody watch. I was working out with a good friend of mine, Kristen, the other day, and, and a lady in our church, uh, Nietzsche, and, and, and she's stronger than both of us. And, and, and we were trying to do a max out thing on, on you know, deadlifts, and uh, just having her there in my face yelling at me <laughs> made me 15 pounds stronger. <laughs> we are stronger and better when people watch us. Imagine how much stronger and better we should be knowing that God is watching us. Godliness. Then contentment. Contentment is the peace I have with what I have. Discontentment leads to all kinds of terrible decisions. You get discontent at home, terrible, terrible, terrible potential for a bad decision. You get discontent with the things that you have, there's the potential for a terrible decision. We, we see our kids do this all the time. Sometimes Shepherd and Grace in their plan, and, and, and Shepherd doesn't want something until his brother has it. He wasn't even thinking about it. Grayson walks through, has it in his hand. Hey! He takes it away from him. I'm like, what are you doing? Son of Adam? What is this? Where? And you know what? Adults, we do the very same thing. We don't want something until we see somebody else have it. You didn't want a new house. Until your new friend, your best friend, your old friend, bought one. You went over there and you're like, wow. You loved your eight-foot ceilings until you saw the ten-footers. And now you went back home and you're dunking down. It's like, honey, I'm going to hit my head. It's much more consequential when adults get discontent and we want kitchens and we want houses and we want cars and all that because we got discontent. We focus on what we don't have instead of being grateful for what we do have. So Paul's given us some good advice. Godliness with contentment. It's good for you. It's good for you. And he says, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. You showed up in all of your glory, which wasn't much. But you showed up. You didn't have any clothes on your back. You didn't have any money in your pocket. You didn't, you didn't have a pocket. You know what? You're going to leave the world with nothing. And for those of you who accumulate some wealth, I, I, I don't know, I shouldn't probably tell you this, but 70% of wealth that's saved in one generation and left to the next, 70% of it is squandered in the second generation. 70% of the time it's squandered in the second generation. By the time you get to the third, 90% of it's squandered. And all the kids and grandkids just despise me right now because it's like, don't say that. I want my shot, man. I want my shot, pastor. I, it's not you. It's, it's, they attend other churches, the people who do that. Not, not you, right? But, but this is what he says. We don't, we don't bring nothing in. We don't take anything out. He says, but if we have food and clothing, we'd be content with that. I just imagine Timothy's reading that going, Paul, you're making me feel like a terrible human being. But hold on. It gets better. He says, those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a trap. Those who are greedy, that those who serve and fund their own purpose, it leads to a trap and many foolish and harmful desires are there that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Amen. Greed leads to a trap and that trap throws us into ruin and destruction. Greed is when we fund our cause or someone else's cause rather than God's cause. 
And let me tell you about greed. Greed can hide in your spending and greed can hide in your saving. It hides in both. You're just not greedy if you spend it all on you. But you can be greedy if you save it all for you. And he says, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. Man, that sounds serious. And pierced themselves with many griefs. And here's what he's saying. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no hope. There's none of that in serving your own purpose and funding your own purpose. Serving and funding your own purpose will undermine ultimately the life that you want. Serving and funding the wrong purpose can undermine your home, your family, your marriage, the future of your kids, the future. It just can't. The love of money is why there's a porn industry. The love of money is why children are exploited. The love of money is why there's such a thing as the sex trade industry. The love of money takes people to some really dark places. This is a serious thing. So he says, Timothy, you man of God. And you're here, ladies. He he can say the same thing, but you, woman of God, flee from this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Isn't that parent, every parent, listen. isn't Isn't this the life you want for your kids? Righteousness. The right thing the right way. Godliness, always living like God's present. Faith, love, endurance, gentleness. That's the life you want for your kids. That's the life you want for you. So how do we we pursue that? How, How do we flee from the love of money and from greed that serves our own purpose and funds our own purpose? And how do we how do we go towards this life we really want? This is so brilliant. He says, I'll tell you. Command those who are rich in this present world. And so I know what some of you are thinking. He's not talking to me. I'm not rich in this present world. If your household income is above $50,000, you are in the top 1% of global wealth. If you're 30 to 40,000, you're in the top 2 or 3% of global wealth. You may not feel rich. But command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. I know what some of you are thinking. You're still fighting with me in your mind. I'm not rich. (laughs) If you had to choose between which pair of shoes to wear today, you're rich. If your car slept in a home last night, (laughs) you're rich. If the first thing you think of when you think Apple is a company... You're rich. It's just the way it is. If you've ever gone down to a car lot and drove your perfectly working car and then gave your car to a man and then gave him some money only to drive away another car. Sounds rich to me. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't establish your self-worth by your net worth. Don't trust money to do what only God can do for you. You can't save your way to safety and you can't accumulate your way to peace. You just can't do it. Don't ever look at money the way you're supposed to look at God. But put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything. I love this. This is good news. This is grace. This this is the freedom of the New Testament. Provides us everything for our enjoyment. You don't have to give it up. You don't have to give anything up. Fund your hobby. Go on vacation. Go on as many as you can. 
Buy the house that you love. Buy that car. But don't do it at the expense of not funding God's purpose first. Fund God's purpose first. And then enjoy what you've been given. But don't enjoy it at the expense of not funding God's purpose in the world. He says, command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. This is how we live with purpose. We do good, right? We get involved. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. It's a command, not a suggestion. Generous living begins with willingness. He says you gotta live with open hands. And you gotta understand that money is not a means to your end, it's a means to God's end, to fund his purpose in this world. So I think Paul, if he could talk to us today, he would say, okay, here here it is. Give generously, give generously. Save wisely. Oh, by all means, save. By all means, invest in retirement. By all means, have an emergency account. By all means, put some back. Save wisely. And and here's what he would say. Live responsibly. Give generously to God. Give to God first. Fund his purpose. Save wisely for the future. That's just good sense. And then whatever's left over, enjoy. Enjoy. Isn't that a liberating message? Isn't that freedom? That's, no, that's not guilt. That's not, that's not compulsion. That's not kick you in the, the mud and make you feel terrible about it. No, this is incredible. And Paul says, so in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Amen. You know what the treasure is? Those who are going to be swept up into the kingdom of God. You have funded God's purpose in this world. And men and women and boys and girls have got swept up into the kingdom of God and they become your treasure. And Jesus taught that one day when we step into eternity, those who have been swept up into the kingdom because we funded God's purpose will welcome us. Is that not incredible? True life. You can look at me like you've been baptized in pickle juice. I don't care. (laughs) Go ahead. You're not intimidating me. You're not bothering me. I'm just telling you the way it is. This is what Jesus, this is what the New Testament, this is what the Word says. This is true life. When you and I decide to see this as a means to an end, that's true life. When you give generously and you save wisely and enjoy the rest, that's true life. God's purpose is worth living for. And God's purpose is worth giving to. That's it. So I want to give you just a couple of thoughts, and I'm not going to extend them. I'm just going to give you something to think about. If I just said God's purpose is worth living for, everybody would amen. Everybody would clap. But you can't clap and say amen to that unless you realize that God's purpose is worth giving to as well. Here's some principles as you move forward. We give because of what God has done, not because of what we want God to do. This is important. Malachi, will a man rob God? Will a woman rob God? Oh, yeah. He says, tithe, and I will open up the floodgates of heaven. Let me tell you, things changed in the New Testament. We're not under the old covenant anymore. It's a New Testament. It's a new covenant. And you know what? In the New Testament, God has already opened up 
the windows of heaven. And he has poured out the greatest blessing and his name is Jesus. And we don't give to get, we give because we have received. And we have been blessed with all blessings in heavenly places through Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, the tithe was the standard. In the New Testament, the cross is the standard. We're called to give cheerfully, sacrificially, even at times till it hurts, always out of love. We give to God first through the church because who did God give to? He gave his son to the church. He spared not the best. And he says, neither should you when you're inspired by the cross. And then third, God invites us to bring him our worst and best. That's, that's the gospel. Your failure, your sin, your screw up, your past, your disillusionment, bring him, bring him all of that. But he also wants you to bring him your best. So are you in? Are you in to serving God's purpose through funding God's purpose? I'm not talking about benevolence. I'm not talking about just charity of paying a bill for somebody, though we should. I'm not talking about just meeting a specific need that makes us feel good about ourselves, though we should meet specific needs. I'm talking about giving consistently to the purpose of God through the local church. When you give to the local church, it's not as sexy sometimes, it's not as emotional, and it's not as always exciting. <laughs> Boy, does it make a difference. When you give, you create environments where people wanna be on Sundays. You've paved parking lots. It used to bother me every time we build a building or build a parking lot, I'd be like, oh my gosh, parking lots are so expensive. But you know what? When you understand what a parking lot does, it allows people to park. People that Jesus died for to park, to come sit and to hear what Jesus did for them. The building, the environment, the lights, the sound, the microphones, the paint, the kids, all of it becomes a means to an end to see people far from God follow Jesus. Some of you like to only give to things that make you feel immediately good, to things that you can immediately measure. But giving to the local church and funding God's purpose, you're giving to something that you just can't quantify because you just can't know the good that it's accomplishing. We'll never know how many families didn't end up in divorce because someone was funding the purpose of God. We'll never know how many kids wandered away from faith because some people funded the purpose of God. We'll never know how many marriages stuck it out all because someone funded the purpose of God. How many suicides were avoided because someone funded the purpose of God? How many unwanted teenage pregnancies were not part of someone's story because someone funded the purposes of God in this world? Look around. God, give us Kentucky. Look at all the problems. Look at all the problems. You know them, I don't have to tell you, but here's what I want to tell you. Jesus is the best answer to our community's worst problems. And the way we make the biggest difference is to fund his purpose in and through the local church. So I ask, are you in? I think you should be. I think you should put your yes on the table because that's true life. That's the best life. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And God, we just, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. God, right now, some of our hearts, it's mounting a defense. We're looking for an excuse. We're looking for a reason. God, help us to pay attention to that. And help us to do what we need to do. Help us to say, I'm in. To all that I'm supposed to be in on. And help me to fund your purpose in this world. So that people get swept up into the kingdom of God. Help me to see my money as a means to an end. So that one day, future generations will stand upon the generosity of our generation. Let it be, Lord.